Welcome to episode 23 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Telemann and Bach. Hello! My name's Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock, and you're listening to episode 23 of That Classical Podcast. Today's an exciting day because we're finally gonna talk about Chris's number one crush, I... aka Bizavi Bach. <laughs> I am so excited. So as long-time listeners of the podcast will oh know, I've got a little bit of a Bach obsession yeah. and I've been Huge. harping on at Kelly saying, please, 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 please can we do an episode about Bach? And she's finally came. I'll allow it. Um, so when Chris told me this, I thought, right, let's get a contemporary mate of Bach's Perfect. as well. Uh, so I thought, tell a man, because he was around. He was around and, uh, and writing music. He's a, a legend. So, <laughs> as you know, when we do a two-composer episode, it is now time for... That's right, it's time for us to condense the entire life and times of Telemann into 60 seconds. Kelly, yeah. <laughs> are you ready? No. <laughs> Three, two, one... Go! Georg Philip Telemann was born in March 1681 in Brandenburg, Prussia, which is now basically Germany. As a child, he was a talented self-taught musician, mastering a violin, flute, zither, and keyboard by the age of 10. But his mum was like, music is the devil, I hate it! Took away all his instruments, but he composed his secret and wrote his first opera at the age of 12. Now, at 1697, Telemann was sent to a fancy school where everyone finally acknowledged his musical abilities, played more instruments. 1701, graduated and intended to study law at Leipzig University, but ended up getting totally involved with music. Started composing church cantatas for University Chapel, made the Student Musical Society into an orchestra, giving public concerts, which, was, which were a novelty back then. Composed loads of operas, and in 1703 became uh, director of Leipzig Opera. Uh, met back around his time. Got bored by 1705. Seconds. Went to Poland at age 24 to conduct the orchestra in court orchestra in Sora. Went to Eisenach in Germany in 1708 to lead the orchestra there. Wrote a ton of music. 1709. Married. 1711. Had a daughter, but sadly his wife died. Went to Frankfurt. 1712. Age 31. Was city music director amongst other posts. 1714. Married his 16-year-old maid. Mm. Um, had nine children with her, and this brought him inspiration and joy. But she was a gambling adulteress, so swings and roundabouts. Am I right? Same year, also became godfather to, to Backson, and because they were manly man bro friends, moved to Hamburg as musical director of five largest churches. Three, uh, stayed in Hamburg for two, the rest of his life. Started gardening. Four. Died. June 1767 of chest ailment. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> that was a okay. struggle. That was that was a lot of words. Yeah. Give give me a little a breakdown, some some nuggets that we might have missed <laughs> among the word salad. Do it. So what we should take from, from this mess yeah. is that uh, Telemann Georg, as we'll call him from now on, was an amazing multi-instrumentalist. And not only this, but he was self-taught on everything. So he must have had uh. quite the brain, if you, if you <laughs> ask me. So he played, amongst other things, violin, flute, zither, which is a kind of stringed instrument on a plank of wood. I don't know, Google sure. it. Uh, piano, organ, recorder, oboe, chalumeau, which is like a, a folk recorder kind of wind instrument kind of thing oh no actually it's sort of it's got a reed I think Ooh. And viola da gamba and like bass trombone. Basically, he was just a desperate overachiever, uh, as, as we as, as we all know. these composers are. And he was like a writer. He wrote loads of poetry. He wrote texts for vocal music and sonnets and stuff. And can you, can you chill out, Telemann? I know, just just calm down. And he was one of the first composers to publish his own work, Ooh. which was mainly because he wanted like dollar dollar bills, but also he was quite kind of groundbreaking in that respect. Nice. So it's also worth saying he wrote over three thousand pieces Ooh. again this is one of those facts 
that is not actually proved, but we think he wrote over 3,000 because he he apparently, according to him, he was like, oh, yeah, According I... to him, he's like, oh, no. Oh, you just can't see them? Oh, they're just in the other room. I'm really sorry. No, I t- honestly, I wrote like 3,000. You just... No, you can't see them. They, they go to another school. You can't. Um, but no, seriously, he wrote over, wait for it, 600 overtures, 200 concertos, 40 operas, and more than 1,000 pieces of church music. I mean, oh, that is okay. nothing to sniff at. I'm not sniffing. And finally, did you hear me mention that he married his 16-year-old maid? Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh dear, Georg, what were you thinking? Yeah, basically, he hired this woman called Maria as, as a maid and then he was like, yeah, she's fit. <laughs> also, I need someone to look after my kid. So I'll take it. Yeah, um, but she was gallivanting around, right? Ooh. And by that, I mean she was, she was off shagging people do you know what i mean how old was he at this point because like 30 something okay so he wasn't but like he was a comparatively gross old man. comparatively oh, for I the guess time he was, was ancient yeah. Yeah, sure. and it was it's ridiculous because the equivalent of like hello magazine at the time like hello magazine <laughs> uh in germany kept writing these articles about how she was like off with someone else they had gossip magazines. yeah they did in like little yeah like the newspaper or whatever and telemann's <laughs> mate started teasing him all about it <laughs> so he went and did like a dr foster and instead of like meekly accepting it he wrote an opera about it <laughs> and the opera I might have to get you to read this out Die ungleiche Heirat zwischen Vespetta und Pimpinone oder das herrsüchtige Kammermädchen. I mean, he should have just called it My Wife's Cheating on Me. <laughs> Shouldn't he? Because that's the longest got the word pimp in it. What are you thinking? <laughs> anyway, he wrote this big opera and then everyone was like, okay, right, he, he's, he's got it. You know, he's okay. all right. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, she gambled all his money away and spent this huge amount of money gambling that was more than he could make in a year. So the entire town had to, like, bail him out of this This sounds like it was an unwise pairing for (laughs) him. He just sort of sent her home to her parents. So that was the end of that. That's the end of that chapter. Oh, dear. So uh, don't marry your 16-year-old maid. Notice. Is the moral of this story. Right. Shall we just launch in? Let's launch into the first piece. Let's do it. Right. Christopher Bland, you know that I like a niche concerto. You do enjoy your niche. I love a bit of a niche. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Do you remember when I did that lute concerto by Vivaldi? I do. No violins and pianos for you. (laughs) Get out of my house. So today we're going to do a recorder concerto. What? Can you believe it? How? How? Does that just work? wait. Recorded just for tiny children up, to play up. Mary Had a Little So, well, and Frere Jacques. But Telemann basically loved the recorder. No other composer of the time wrote as much for the recorder as he did, okay. right? And uh, in, in the Baroque era, because that's what we're talking about again mm-hmm. today. And I think this goes back again to the fact that he was such a talented multi-instrumentalist. And to, to like... To learn all these things himself, he must yeah. have really had to study each instrument so sure, much sure. and really understand how everything worked. And he just must have appreciated the recorder. He must have <laughs> absolutely loved it. So many really have it. not since. And he, do you know what? He, there's even this quote from his autobiography that says, no, it's not enough that the notes just sound, that you know only how to take your wares to market. Give each instrument what it can bear so the player has pleasure and you have enjoyment from it. And that's what okay. I get from all his pieces. Like, he celebrates these instruments. So he's written for a lot of different instruments, right? Exactly. And that he gives them specific yeah. roles and stuff that they can do. Exactly. Like, he's given the recorder this, like, almost virtuoso role nice. as a solo instrument. Like, so, you know, next time you're wondering if you want your kid to learn the recorder. <laughs> you think it is. So today we're going to listen to Concerto for Treble Recorder, Strings Beautiful. and Continuo, our favourite, our best friend, the Basso Continuo. Beautiful. Uh, in C. 
and it's the fourth movement of it. It's called Tempo de Minuet. Um, let's just smash it. All right. Oh my god. I mean, I I was never that good at the recorder when I played it I as a child. I don't believe it for a second. Uh, it's insane, isn't it? It's intense. All yeah, the kind I of like... Never really, I mean, I vaguely know that there was a bit of interest in the recorder around the Baroque period, but I've only ever really heard it in the context of like a, a console, like a group of recorders playing together sure. and it sounds a bit yeah. sort of organy. But, this, but I've never heard it being used like that virtuosically that's before. That's exactly right, that's isn't super it? super cool. And it deserves it because it sounds beautiful and it doesn't deserve it's still a recorder at the end of the day i'll tell you this for free as well i was listening to this the other day on the way home i was skipping along mate. i was, I was loving it over waterloo bridge just absolutely loving it and uh honestly there's so much character in in yeah. in his music for recorder that i mm. really suggest you go and listen to it because it's it is different it is different mm. we never hear the recorder in classical music so um i don't think i've in fact ever heard a recorder concerto right. in my entire life this is, up to this point. so you know what go in it Go and investigate those niche concertos. Maybe I will. Lads, lads and lassies and Christopher Bunn. Um And yeah, on to the next one. Not classical. Classical podcast. Not classical podcast. Next. Hello. We are going to talk about the phenomenon commonly known as Tafel music. Tafel music. Tafel music. So tafel music is is literally in German table music. Right? Yeah. And immediately when I heard this phrase, I thought, okay, picture the scene. You're totally skint. You're in Sainsbury's, but you need to get a bottle of wine to bring to your friend's house. Yeah. And you see this dusty, crumbling shelf, and it's got table wine on it. Have you ever seen that? And no, it says what? table wine. It's usually like a white wine. It says table wine. <laughs> it just says and table it just wine. says table wine. And it doesn't say the grape. It doesn't say the type of wine. And it's about £2.50. And it reminded me of that. Um, so this is dusty, crumbling. This is dusty, crumbling. A bit like mild music. cheese. Do you ever see that? And it doesn't say what kind of cheese it is. It just says that I it's once, mild. I was in uh, in France, and I bought this wine that literally just said, like, white wine on it and had that's no ex- other information. That's exactly what I mean. Table wine. Anyway, so Telemann's tafel music is not the equivalent of table wine. Um, okay, right. it, it just means that it was music for the table kind of during a banquet or like a feast right. or something like okay, that. Okay. I mean it doesn't it didn't have to be, but commonly that's what it was, like sure, in the Baroque sure. period of music. And Telemann's tafel music is actually probably the best known tafel music uh, in the world, actually. Okay. And it was published in 1733, which also made it like the last set of Tafel music okay. published. Sure. So it's kind of the last example that we have. So he wrote this for a bunch of rich people, basically, um, who kind of agreed to pay an exorbitant fee for all the kind of published pieces. So yeah, absolutely. You make that money, Tafel. Winning, <laughs> winning. And it's divided. So basically the whole thing is divided into three parts. And all the three parts are each in six parts. Okay. Does that make sense? It's I'm a with you. vast, I'm with you. vast collection of sure. pieces. It's got to last for a whole banquet. So, well, exactly. 
Exactly, which will probably several hours long, I imagine, by then. It's so much easier just to make a Spotify playlist, isn't it? Though, you rather know, than composing your own eighteen of, movement thing. <laughs> a bit of Daniel Bedingfield on that. <laughs> um, so basically, the six parts consisted of a massive overture, a quartet for three instruments with a continuo, yeah, um, a concerto for several solo instruments and strings, a trio, a solo with continuo, and then a big conclusion. Okay. So there's quite a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So yeah. today we're going to listen to the fourth part of the first set <laughs> okay. of Tapel Music. So that's a trio in E flat major. Very nice. Uh, it's the Allegro. It's great. Let's let's give it a go. All right then. Next time I host a banquet, I know what I'm playing. It's going to be the best dinner party in the world. It will last for eight hours. <laughs> um, that was great, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. It was nice. It's, do you know what I just find with Telemann's music is that he's very good at keeping your attention. Yeah. I find like the minute you're about to like doze off or kind of drift off, he'll do something twiddly and cool and, and yeah, get your attention true, back. Actually, yeah. And it must have just been really entertaining. No wonder everyone wanted to shell out for it. Because if you did yeah. have that at your dinner party, That'd people be would... A hit. It would be. But so, yeah. That is Tafel music. There are so many pieces in there that were mm. worth playing. It was mm. actually really difficult to choose. Sure. Some lovely concertos in there as well. Stuff for flute and um, more recorders getting involved. <laughs> Can't get enough all of the them. Time. But I would say, please, 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 go and listen to a bunch of Telemann's concertos. Yeah. They are beautiful. And he's very famous for his sort of trumpet concertos as well. Okay. Um, go and listen to those. Uh, he's got some lovely songs as well, almost oh, a cool. bit sort of like cool. leader. Yeah. And just so much to explore, a lot of more niche things, a lot of underappreciated things. I hear um, he's very prolific. Apparently wrote over 3,000 <laughs> pieces, allegedly. <laughs> That's what they say. Uh, but anyway, go and explore and tell me what your favourite piece is. We'll compare niche recommendations. It'll be grand. That classical podcast. I am so excited. <laughs> it is time. It is finally time <laughs> for us to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach. The pressure is well and truly on, Chris. Oh, it's not. I mean, <laughs> you ready, listeners? This okay. is about to be a four-hour-long podcast. Okay, no, but we'd still have to do the 60-second show, right, which okay, you've got to right. smash on pain of death. <laughs> uh, so let's let's go let's go for it. Are you ready? I'm ready. You steady? Oh. Go. Johann Sebastian Bach, born 1685, died in 1750, born in Germany to a super prestigious musical family where seemingly everyone else was a wolf called Johann. Surrounded by these professional musicians from an early age, he was well grounded in organ playing, violin, singing, etc. Parents died when he was nine, so they moved in with his brother, a church organist, also called Johann. Learned to try to scud loads of music, even though he wasn't supposed to, because blank copy paper was super expensive. He grew up to become a performer, also becoming an organist first at the Neukirche in Anstatt, where he wrote some music, didn't get on well with his students, thought the choir was pants and would berate them. One chased him with a stick, and the church told Bach he should be a bit more forgiving with his students. Um, he moves to 
a couple of other churches, settles in Weimar for a while. He's married to his first wife and second cousin, Maria Barbara Bach. Seven Obviously. kids, three of which died in infancy. Uh, he's composing like absolute mad the whole time, begins composing lots of orchestral and keyboard stuff. Uh, 1717, hired by the Prince of Anhalt Kutten to be his new Kapellmeister. The Duke of Weimar did not like this in jails Bach for a month. Oops. Um, his wife dies suddenly in 1720, 1721. He meets a soprano who's 16 years his junior and they have 13 children. Um, 1723, what? appointed Thomas Cantor in charge of music for four big churches in Leipzig. Uh, he stays in this position until his death. Lots of writing spans from church music section stuff as well. 1750, a healthy client goes Three. blind, dies as a result of complications from unsuccessful eye surgery. 59.9 seconds. Okay, let's just get one thing straight. How many people may or may not have been called Johan? Oh, so like all of his relatives were like his dad, his uncle, some of his brothers, some cousins. Anyway, I'm sure they got on fine with it. They were all used to it. Mm. So a couple of things that stick out. So one of his first jobs was being an organist at this church in a town called Arnstadt. So he was like 18 or 19 at this point. Mm -hmm. And he had relatively high standards. So when the choir and the musicians accompanying the choir weren't that good, he would just be like, why why are you so bad? Be less bad. Great. Um, Constructive. So much so so that one of his accompanists, who was a bassoon player, he called him uh, a tziplfagotist, which um, has a bunch of different translations. So fagotist is a bassoon player. The word tzipl, so I speak German, I had no idea what this word meant. I looked it up, couldn't find a translation anywhere. There were various uh, translations for this offered ver- variously as uh, a weenie bassoonist, a numpty bassoonist, a dick bassoonist. Um, what were the other ones? A ninny head bassoonist was one particularly good one I saw. Um, so, yeah, he did not get on well with this bassoonist. Oh, mercy! Uh, a weenie, a weenie bassoonist. A weenie bassoonist. A dick bassoonist <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, oh, my God. So, a what bad a rotten bassoonist. And so this bassoonist didn't take well to be called a weenie. A weenie bassoonist. Chased Bach around with a stick and then the... Oh, um, he chased Bach around with yeah, a stick. Yeah, yeah, oh, I thought yeah. you were saying Bach was chasing people. <laughs> no. Oh, right, okay. No. Right, okay. Um, and the, the authorities at the church were like, Bach, baby, you gotta, you got to chill out on people. So, Not yeah. everyone is J.S. Bach, okay? Go a bit easy oh, on them. Oh, my God, yeah. So... A few months after this, Bach requested a leave of absence from the church of four weeks to go and visit another composer in Lübeck, which is a town sort of a couple hundred miles away. She didn't return for four months without telling them. They were like, oh. You're all a bunch of weenies. I'm out of yeah, here. He thought they were all total weenies, basically. Oh, my sweet lord. <laughs> and then, so the big job that he had that he's most well known for is the Thomas Cantor in the city of Leipzig. Right. Sorry, I called it Leipzig earlier. That's my bad. It was a 60-second pressure. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Leipzig. And being the Thomas Kantor means that you're in charge of music at the Thomas Kirche, the St. Thomas Church. And it also meant mm. that he was in charge of music for four other churches in Leipzig. So he was the big dog in the Leipzig music scene. Mm. And he was there for um, just shy of 30 years, I think, until his death. And that's where he wrote pretty much... All of his stuff. Uh, and it was actually a job that Telemann had turned down. Yeah, I read all about this, actually. Yeah. It sounded like a convoluted nightmare. <laughs> like, he accepted the job and then he turned it down and then someone died. All very or, complex, mm. yeah, yeah. So, had Telemann taken that job, mm. uh, we would have never got all those years and years of productivity that Bach had in Leipzig. It all worked out in the end. It worked out perfectly. Right. So, before we get cracking on the pieces... I actually just want to give you just a little bit of insight into my brain as to why I'm so obsessed with Bach. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, So the first time I really got into him was when I was preparing one of his pieces for uh, an instrumental exam. I was doing my grade eight flute. No biggie. Show off. And I had to do a solo flute partita by Bach. 
And for some reason, just got like utterly obsessed with this. So a partita is just like a solo hmm. piece for an instrument. We're going to be listening to one of his violin partitas in a second. Sick. And just the way he created harmony out of one solo melodic line just blew my tiny teenage mind. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was so complex and so simple at the same time. (laughs) And also, uh, in sixth form, it was the first time I ever conducted a choir was some Bach. It was a little excerpt from the Matthew Passion. No way! You conducted a choir? Yeah, the school choir. We were on this, like, choir course. Hidden depth. And we rehearsed all the repertoire, so our choir teacher was like, does anyone want to go, like, conducting a bit? And me... Oh, you please. Know, you oh, know, God. You know how I hate the spotlight, Kelly. Such you know I'll do anything to avoid being <laughs> looked at by people. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I was awful at it. I was dreadful. Mm, I bet. But it gave me my first taste of may have been how to a weenie a conductor. I was a weenie conductor. may have not been proud of you. Uh, great. Okay, great. So uh, what are we going to listen to now? So the first piece we're going to listen to is from a violin partita that I'll he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was his second violin partita. He wrote three solo sonatas and three solo partitas for violin. Okay. And the second partita he wrote between 1717 and 1720. Mm-hmm. And we're going to listen to the fifth movement of it, which is called the Chacon, or in Italian, the Chacon. All right. <laughs> and it's a very famous piece, basically. Okay. It often stands as like a solo piece. So the whole partita is like 23, 25 minutes long. And the final movement of it that we're going to listen to is about 12 minutes long. So it's about half the length of the total piece. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, again, so as I was saying with the flute piece, he just creates this amazing suggestion of harmony just through a solo line. So obviously the advantage of playing on a violin is that you can double stop, you can play more than one note at the same time. Yeah. But there's so much harmony suggested that just by the one solo line, and it's just phenomenally clever and great. This better be good. Oh my <laughs> god, it's so good. I'm say, um, shall we listen? Let's. Let's do it. play you a short excerpt that unfortunately Mm. but so the whole thing as i said was about 12 minutes long Mm. and um oh it's just fantastic so a very famous violinist from the 20th century a chap called yehudi menuhin uh, called it the greatest structure for solo violin that exists um another violinist guy called josh bell who's performing at the moment still he goes even further he says it's not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written but one of the greatest achievements of any man in history it's a spiritually powerful piece emotionally powerful structurally perfect whoa (laughs) and to be honest i totally agree Uh, do you know what's interesting about that as well i'm pretty sure a lot of violinists agree with you because (laughs) do you remember when we did the episode on dvorak and i said that one of the concertos that was like da 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 is what every cellist that came in to try cellos yeah. at the place I used to work used to play to try yeah, out yeah, cellos. Yeah. This piece is the piece that all violinists oh, play really? to try out new violins. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> it, it must give you a really good feel of what 
the violin is like and what mm. the oh, sort of all the different sounds yeah, yeah. are like and yeah isn't oh, that really interesting trivia yeah, that's You're welcome. cool um so i think he is the greatest composer of all time bar none because of the way he bar none he's one of the only composers i can come back to time and time again and keep discovering new stuff in it the way he's just sort of the structure of his pieces is incredible the technical facility that he brings to it is again incredible but also just the emotion in it i think Mm -hmm. there are some composers that get especially baroque composers actually that get lost in the excitement of like look at me modulate into this key and do this exciting technical thing trills he (laughs) trills for example (laughs) he he never loses the sort of the real emotional core of his Mm -hmm. work and sorry i'll stop gushing now but he's just so good you know what i i also <laughs> see in that I, I see what you mean and i see in that piece as well even though it's a solo piece for a violin it sounds very full mm. and and very few composers can accomplish yeah, that yeah and it stands the test of time and yeah oh boy howdy when, does it when i listen to bach i always think this is great and then that's where i sort of stop but i do <laughs> i do need to i do need to go research it myself uh, yes you do shall we listen to the next one? Oh, can we The next piece we're going to talk about, I'm 99.999999% confident. Ooh, that was a good ad. <laughs> you know it, and everyone else knows it. Okay. It yeah. is his Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Okay. You know the one? Calling card of supervillains everywhere around the globe. <laughs> Absolutely it is. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's the Toccata part of it. Okay. And we're going to talk about the Fugue part of it today. Right. It's in two halves. Okay, what is a Toccata before we go on? It's oh, it's just basically a showpiece for a keyboard. It's basically showing off their technique and skill. Got it. Okay, excellent. That's all it is. On we go. However, a fugue uh, is a thing that Bach, unsurprisingly, was a super duper master of. Okay. And it's <laughs> course he was, yeah. <laughs> course he was. So it's two main things that are real stylistic features of baroque music that Bach absolutely nailed down, and that was uh, the fugue and counterpoint within it. So a fugue is. Basically, when a theme, which is a short melody or phrase, is introduced by one part and then is developed, repeated, yeah, and we've, taken we over by others. Yeah, we talked about that in another episode, actually, didn't we? we did, yeah, didn't yeah, we? yeah. And the way that Bach does this particularly well is by doing it contrapuntally, so in counterpoint, which means that there's more than one melody going on at the same time and they being sort of, developed and yeah, stuff. and they okay. they work okay. with each other and work against each other, and. So it's not just melody on top of harmony. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But for example, if we look back to the title music from um, Telemann, mm-hmm. that was a basso continuo accompaniment. Don't start dissing Telemann. Hey, I am not dissing uh, Telemann. I'm saying it's just a different okay, kind right. of writing. Okay. There's an accompaniment with a solo instrument on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Bach was really, really instrumental in, no pun intended, in bringing about... Oh, leave my house! In doing really cool stuff with counterpoint of making instruments work with and against each other. Mm -hmm. So, let's have a listen. for me is the epitome of a banger that is that, that is 
is a classical tune a with classical a C-H. A classical tune. What an absolute smash hit. It's good, isn't it? Mm. And so what I just think is so clever about it is that he just takes that and layers it over itself, but in intervals so that like chords come out of the tune. Yeah. And, like, mm. It's phenomenal. It is clever. magical. It sounds very complicated, but it's actually very simple. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so just this piece as a side note has a much wilder backstory than I realised I thought it's like super famous one of his big organ pieces everyone's known it the whole time and loved it the whole time mm-hmm. no no uh, we don't know what year it was composed in it's just one of his organ pieces okay um, it wasn't popular <laughs> played at all until uh, Mendelssohn the composer Mendelssohn oh, yeah. dug it out and performed it in 1840 which is we've mentioned in the uh, episode where we talked about Purcell do you remember the Baroque revival that I happened do with the countertenors exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mendelssohn was a big part of this Baroque revival and one who really repopularised Bach's work. So how long after Bach's death is this? Uh, about 90 odd years. Okay, so he died well, 1750. That's quite a long time. Yeah, that's a bit of time, yeah. Mm. So this piece almost disappeared. We reckon it was probably only a single manuscript copy that was just left somewhere that was found and oh copied out. It was just another one of his organ, like myriad organ pieces that he wrote. Yeah. And then after Mendelssohn made it slightly famous, it then became super, super famous through its use in loads of film and TV. So like you said, the super villain calling card. Babes, isn't this exactly what happened with Bach's etude, cello etude as well? Like Similar, some yeah. randomer played it because he found it in like a shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it became a really famous piece. That's exactly it. So because he was so, so prolific that lots of his amazing pieces had just got lost. Oh my gosh. So because of this, there's loads of disputes over when exactly it was written. Mm. And it, even if it was written by him, some people think it might not have been. Tell man tell a man all about it so when i was looking into this there was this one amazing paragraph that i found online about it uh that i'm actually just gonna have to read out to you okay so this is um about the reception of the work and how it was sort of critically and academically talked about so Quote, the composition has been deemed particularly suited to the organ and strikingly unorganistic. It has been seen as united by a single ground thought and as containing passages which have no connection whatsoever with the chief idea. It's been called entirely virtuosic and not so difficult as it sounds. So <laughs> this paragraph That's goes... That's the least helpful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> this paragraph Thanks for nothing. goes on for another couple of hundred words what idiot about wrote people that? coming up with like <laughs> one opinion on it and then another person coming up with completely the opposite sure. opinion. Yeah, yeah. For what it's worth... I think it's the cat's pyjamas. I think it's great. I think it's tickety-boo. I don't think our opinions are split, so that's good. That's all right then, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. What else should we listen to if we want a bit of Bach? Well, where do I start? <laughs> so if you're interested in more of his pieces for solo instrument, listen to the rest of his violin, partitas and sonatas. He's also written a bunch of solo organ pieces that are incredible. If you're interested in uh, his stuff for orchestra, the Brandenburg concertos are amazing. If you're interested in piano or keyboard stuff, listen to the Goldberg oh, variations. We've oh yeah, Glenn Gould as Glenn well. Glenn Gould is an amazing version of those. Really and we've featured one of those on the podcast before. Mm. Um, if you like bigger scale choral stuff, he's written... The St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion, his Mass in B minor is super famous. Which we played on the first episode of this podcast. See, I was obsessed with him back from the first day. Um, I have a never-ending list of Bach recommendations, but I think that is where my list should (laughs) end for now. Start with those and let us know how you (laughs) get on. Let us know what else you find. That Classical Podcast. 
So that was our episode on Telemann and Bach. Kelly, thank you so much for finally, finally letting me do an episode on Bach. You are so welcome. Now, before we go into our social handles, we have a really important announcement to make. We're so excited to share with you that the London South Bank Centre has asked us to host one of their What You Need to Know days about Schubert. It's very exciting. So these days are hosted by the South Bank Centre and there are about four or five of them a year. And they link them to concerts they have going on at the centre. So this one is going to be all about Schubert and his piano sonatas. Because mm-hmm. they've got a concert coming up with a wonderful pianist called Mitsuko Uchida. She's amazing. She is incredible. Mm-hmm. And they've asked us to come in and talk about These Schubert <laughs> and his sonatas. Mm. So it's going to be us. We'll be telling you a bit about them. They've got a wonderful piano player from the Royal College of Music. We're going to be chatting to him. He's going to be playing. Uh, they've got some academics to come in, some boffins who know mm. what they're talking about. You know what, lads? It's just going to be a smorgasbord of delightful Schuberty tidbits. And we just love it if you could be there. So please head to the London South Bank Centre website. Just Google that. It'll come up and get some tickets. And we'll be sharing the link everywhere as we well. We will. We will indeed. <laughs> now, before we go, we've got to remind you of all our social media handles. Absolutely, we do. So if you want to get in touch with us either about the South Bank Centre day or you just want to like drop us a line, you can reach us on Twitter. We are at That Classical. Yeah, we are. You can reach us on Instagram. We are at That Classical Insta. Look at all our beautiful photos. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You can email us at thatclassicalemail at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just type it in. That Classical Podcast. (laughs) And we also have uh, a Spotify playlist, which we update every single episode. Yeah, we do. uh, With all the pieces that we've played and also all the pieces that we think you should go and listen to. So do have a look at that and and find your favourites there. And finally, please do remember to rate us five stars on iTunes. We love you very much if you do that. Bye. Yeah, hopefully, if you if you don't think we're a weenie podcast, give us, <laughs> give us a little five star. We'll be very grateful. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I just want you back. Want you back. Want you back.